The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jacqueline Rose. We talked about her new book, On Violence and On Violence Against Women. We discussed how psychoanalysis can help us to grasp the mental states that make male violence possible, where Jacqueline parts company with the radical feminist perspectives of Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, and we also talked about how the experience of trans women illuminates more broadly the nature of male violence against women. Finally, we talked about the violent history of South Africa from the colonial and apartheid eras up to the present day. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Border and Rule by Harsha Walia. How do borders divide the international working class and consolidate imperial capitalist and racist rule? Amidst a global pandemic, governments around the world have accelerated border closings, imposed more barriers to asylum seekers, and expanded immigration detention. In Border and Rule, leading thinker and organiser Harsha Walia explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies with shared logics of border rule that displace, criminalise, exploit, and expel migrants and refugees. With her keen ability to connect the dots, Walia delivers a deeply researched and beautifully written work that provides the first in-depth global analysis of borders and a clarion call for revolution. Border and Rule by Harsha Walia is out now from Haymarket Books, and readers in the UK can buy the book from bookshop.org. And now to today's interview. Jacqueline Rose is a renowned feminist literary and cultural critic. She is the co-director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London and the co-founder of Independent Jewish Voices. She's a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, amongst many other publications, and her previous books include Mothers, an Essay on Love and Cruelty, Proust Among the Nations, From Dreyfus to the Middle East, and The Haunting of Sylvia Plath. The title of the book is On Violence and On Violence Against Women. And of course, the first part of that title is a reference to Hannah Arendt's essay On Violence, which appeared in her 1972 book, Crises of the Republic. And Arendt is is talked about in some depth in the book and will come on to her, I'm I'm sure. But first, I, I just wanted to ask why you chose to write a book that, as well as trying to understand the particularities of violence against women also seeks to take the question of male violence as an opportunity to think through more broadly how violence happens and what needs to be going on psychologically for perpetrators to be violent. So could you say something on on, on why you decided to go with this perhaps less snappy title that points to the complexities of the book, I think? Yes, well, thank you for that question. I mean, basically, Hannah Arendt, I argue in what is for me probably the core chapter, one of the core chapters of the book, which is Feminism and the Abomination of Violence, in which I go into her work, I hope, in considerable depth. 
And I argue that she has much to say to feminism, but she didn't know that. That would be news to her. Yes. Um, I mean, she, <laughs> she, she cannot. I mean, there, there have been critics recently who've tried to argue that she is indeed a feminist thinker. And I do argue that in relationship to her analysis of domestic servitude and tyranny in the home. And I also argue that her concept of impotent bigness is gendered, even if she doesn't draw out the gendered implications of that concept. So I was very keen to engage with Arendt's concept of violence in the 21st century. But at the same time, I felt very much that the world is tilting towards male violence against women. It has become acutely accentuated, and not least of all during the pandemic, when the rate of violence against women in form of domestic abuse has shot up dramatically. And so the title is a kind of provocation, which is that I'm writing about violence against women, but I don't want to see that as the whole story. I want to also ask under what conditions more generally is violence, as you say, psychologically possible? So it was my way of saying on violence against women is what I'm talking about, but it is specific, but it is not exhaustive. It doesn't cover the whole field. Because if you make violence against women the whole field, before you know where you are, you've walked straight into what I see as one of the main areas of contention in the book, which is you've walked straight into the Catherine McKinnon, Andrea Dworkin radical feminist position, which has been so, so influential, which basically does say all violence is sexualized. And it's sexualized along the axis, male, female. And I don't think that's the case not quite in that way, put it like that. I think it's more complex than that. And I think certain things follow from the radical feminist position, which I would want to take issue with. Let me start by saying, for anybody who's listening, that when I say radical feminism, I very much I'm a child of the 70s when I first became politically self-aware. And radical feminism didn't mean Andrew Dworkin and then later Catherine McKinnon. It doesn't mean radical feminism in the way that it's used today to describe Sisters Uncut and social activism and political feminism, of which I feel very supportive. On that point about where your position is distinct from the position of the radical feminists that you mentioned there. So in the introduction to the book, you discuss the notorious and very widely discussed case of, of Harvey Weinstein, who's currently serving a 23-year prison term after being convicted for rape and a number of other crimes of abuse and, and harassment. And you suggest that he was able to get away with his abuse of women for so long, not simply due to the power he held in the film industry, which is obviously talked about very much, or due to the way people are often inclined to look away from abuse of that kind, but also because, and, and, and this is where that distinction between your position and the radical feminist position seems to come out, that as you put it in the book, no one wanted to open the Pandora's box of a man like Weinstein's inner world to look too closely at his greatest fears. Could you explain what you were getting at there? Well, I think it, two moments in the trial were absolutely extraordinary for me. One was when he walked in on a Zimmer frame in order to sort of win a sympathy vote. And two days later, at the weekend, he was seen walking around a supermarket unaided. So he wanted to exploit the idea of a kind of physical vulnerability in order to excite the compassion of people who obviously felt no compassion towards him whatsoever, nor would one want them to. But the other moment that really stood out, well, this is part of a bundle in a way, were the number of women who said what clearly excited him was the coercion. 
What clearly excited him was the resistance of the women and their revulsion towards him. So that the revulsion towards him as a sexual being was what made his predation so essential and urgent for him. And at one point in the hearings, which were positively surreal, and there's equivalent moments in the trial of Oscar Pistorius, and I know we're going to come to that, but one of the real standout surreal moments in the trial is when one of his victims said he lacked testicles, and they actually handed round photographs of his body in the courtroom. And whether or not it was true, and unless you're in that courtroom and you're not in a position to say, whether or not it was true, I thought it was so important that the opposite of sexual prowess or unproblematic assertive masculine sort of erupted in the middle of the courtroom. And the whole question of whether a man is ever really a man and whether a woman is ever really a woman, which I know we're also going to come on to in relationship to trans, was suddenly in your face in the middle of a case that seemed to exemplify male power over female bodies, violent male power over female bodies in its most graphic dimension. And I suppose what I would want to do would be to inject those moments of precariousness and uncertainty and fragility into the heart of the violence itself and suggest that they're intimately related and that a certain kind of sexual violence is to do with a resistance, a will blindness against what is in fact the fragility of sexual identity for all of us. And if you think with Freud, which as I know you will know, Alex, if you've labored your way through this book, if you think with Freud, then sexual identity is always a question mark. It's never a settled issue. Now, Catherine McKinnon and Andrew Dworkin have no time for that. Violence against women is the worst embodiment of a power that can only affirm itself and which is always dominant. Do you think that part of the resistance to thinking along those lines of thinking about the insecurity and anxiety and the self-loathing that characterises the position of somebody like Weinstein, perhaps, is that by talking about those things, it can almost seem as if, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think it could be interpreted as making a case of describing mitigating circumstances and saying, well, the violence happened because this person is unhappy or feels bad about themselves and we should extend more empathy and and understanding. Do you think that's why there may be that resistance? Well, I would want to make a distinction here. I mean, I do say centrally in the book, and it's at the core of my argument, that if feminism insists that the worst images of femininity is not who we are as women, If that is the basis of the possibility of feminism, as I always say to my students, if patriarchy wasn't effective, we wouldn't need feminism. But if it was 100% effective, we wouldn't have feminism. Right, so it's absolutely central to feminism that I am not that name, as Denise Riley said in her brilliant book, I am not that name. I am not what you are telling me to be. Which means there is a gap between the socially imposed norm and the complexity and range of what a woman can be. Well, if we think that's how sexuality works in a patriarchal culture, that must also, we must give that same breathing space to men. We must give them the room inside which they can relinquish, explore, discard, or if you're a trans woman, hate the form of masculinity on offer, right? We must allow it. So to that extent, it is a plea for the capacity of anybody to stop and think right? Including, I hope, Weinstein in jail for 23 years. I hope he'll have some time to think. Okay. On the other hand, 
and I think this is also very important. When Arendt makes her crucial distinction between violence and power, when she says that violence arises when power knows itself to be illegitimate, and she comes up with a quote, which is one of my favorites from her, where she talks about the realms in which man cannot change or act and therefore has a distinct tendency to destroy. When she says that, I think she's saying something very sinister and very frightening, which is also the result of allowing for the gap between violence and power, which is to say that you enact violence because you know your power is fraudulent, but you enact it worse. It's even nastier. That's, that's the motor factor. So somewhere between allowing men the space to question what they've been asked to be and recognizing that uncertainty unleashes the worst forms of violence, or can do, is where I would want to situate myself. But it means you have to open up the realm of the mind and look at how ambivalent and fraught and complex we are about, you know, our decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, our relationships, our loved ones, our work, our writing, you know, let alone our sexual identity, which is meant to be fixed and certain and stable. So I think you've got to move on more than one plane at once, but the only solution is to really look at just how these things play out inside the mind. You've already mentioned the focus that the book has on transgenderism, and there were two chapters in the book, although there's discussion elsewhere as well. And I suppose if one was coming to the book with the title it has and, and perhaps not knowing much about it, one might assume perhaps that those chapters would be solely on the issue of, of violence against trans people, in particular trans women who we know are particularly subject to male violence. And although you do talk about the particular character of violence against trans women, you also take up the issue of transgenderism to more broadly talk about the question of, of violence and how violence becomes possible. So can you explain how you think that the writings and experiences of trans people are useful in thinking through violence against women more generally? Well, they really open up something so difficult and so controversial that has got much, much worse since I wrote the essay out of which the chapter on trans was written, and even the second one, which is to say that trans throws into crisis our notion of sexual identity because it says it cannot be determined by the sexual paraphernalia with which you are born, that there's something more complex than that, and that, in fact, you can go so far as to want to refuse it. But there's violence running all the way through this story, I mean, there was a trans woman who the judge justified the killing of her. The defendant was let off on the grounds. She was a woman of color. She, he was let off on the grounds that when he approached her sexually, he did not know she was trans. And that is called the trans panic defense. And it implies that actually the sight of a trans woman who turns out generally not to be completely a woman, or completely in quotes, is sufficient grounds for murder, right? And it says it all. It really, the law really indicts itself in that case, as in many other cases which I came across. To start with, the law is saying that trans is in and of itself a violence. Plus the fact that the rate of murder of trans women is high, and rising, and predominantly women of color. So there's a kind of intersectionality, there's a racism, there's a kind of overdetermined revulsion against the trans woman's body. And this has become, at the core of the debates about things like the Hampstead Ladies Pond and imprisonment, 
because trans women quite rightly want to enter women's spaces. And TERFs, as they're called, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, want to preserve the category of male and female and see those spaces as a safe space for women in the absence of men, which means they do not accept that trans women are women. Right, so that the question of who should have access becomes a question of my right to define you. So you say you're a woman, and I say you're not. And in an absolutely extraordinary letter in The Guardian, which I talk about, a group of women said, we are surgically intact, and the only trans women who can come to the women's pond have had to go undergo the operation for them to be acceptable. I think I've got that right. So they're really saying the condition of being a woman is that you mutilate your body and make it as much like a woman as possible, even though that is an act of violence. And a lot of trans women go part of the way, some of the way, all the way, keep crossing backwards and forwards across the divide. It's an incredibly rich mix of sexual possibilities. But the question of violence turns out to be absolute core, which is to say the condition of entry is an act of self-perpetrated violence. And the implication is if you haven't done that, then you are only going to Ladies' Pond in order to perversely watch and assault women, which is why J.K. Rowling's intervention was so powerful, because she said, I was abused, and therefore, for that reason, I need a space where I know I will not be abused, and there must not be a man in that space, which again implies that a trans woman is not a woman. What gets missing from this is the fact that any trans woman who has gone through this process, if there's one thing she's repudiating, it's masculinity, right? That's what she doesn't want to be. And when I read Jane County, and when I read a number of extraordinary women writers who really, really, and so Kate Bornstein would be the obvious one, these are women whose main main desire was not to be the man they were expected to be. So they would, in a sense, be a fulfillment of what I said earlier, which is that not all men want to be men, and we should welcome that. And these men take it to a particular point, which is trans. So violence is everywhere in this story, right? And Jane Fay spoke. She's a trans activist, and she spoke at the Women of the World Festival organized by Jude Kelly with thousands of women from all over the world and hundreds of women speaking over a three-hour marathon at the end of March. You can watch it online on YouTube. It was quite extraordinary. And she just said, for goodness sake, we're talking about maximum 25,000 trans women in the UK. Maximum. And they talked about it as if they were kind of an armed horde, an armed militia coming to get you. She also said something which is so important. She said the agitation around trans women is denying the solidarity there could be between those women and feminists and detracting attention from equality, reproductive rights, unfair wages, abuse of women. It's just a way of, it serves the far-right agenda because all those other things which really need to be talked about just slip by the wayside. The particular horror that there seems to be around ambiguity, and, and you mentioned that that case of that murder of the black trans woman, is that about the fact that that experience calls into question the sexuality of the perpetrator, right? Because in this case, you know, they have been attracted to a trans woman not knowing that they were trans, and that therefore that conflicts with their idea of their very sort of fixed sexual identity. I think that's an excellent point to make, because I think... What trans does is really, it's like a Freudian revolution. 
Well, Freud didn't go this far, but it's like a Freudian revolution, just in the sense that suddenly the whole question of what constitutes sexual identity is is on the front pages of newspapers. You know, so I can't remember which unlikely newspaper had his, all over its front page an officer and a gentleman. It was about a woman who tranced and who had gone into the army and who'd actually been welcome. I mean, it was really quite interesting. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think part of my politics is to always look at the points where certainties are wavering and looking less sure of themselves because that's, that's the radical moment. That's the exciting moment for potential transformation. So just to give another example, the rate of domestic abuse under lockdown has increased dramatically. And it's very clear that there are two reasons for this. And Julia Kristeva, the philosopher, calls it feminicide, another bout of it, because she says that women, and I discuss this in my mother's book, actually, uh, yeah, so I would say this, that women are expected to make the world safe and the heart just in order to look after babies and husbands and so on and so forth. And when they fail to do so, they're killed. Or that's rather what the pandemic is showing, which is the number of deaths are so out of control that women can no longer protect men from the frailty and mortality and all those things which every human being, to be a human being is to suffer from those forms of uncertainty. There's no way around it. I could be killed tomorrow walking out of my front door, you know, and you could get COVID and so on and so forth. So what this has done is shown how precarious we are and women are no longer fulfilling their role. But it's also the fact that the men at home who find themselves in lockdown feel they're being feminized. And that is also fueling... They're in the home, they're not, not necessarily working. and Precisely. So that would be another example. Trans would be one example. The domestic arrangements of lockdown would be another example of where... Things we sort of, or the dominant culture expects us to take for granted, are revealed in their fundamental instability and uncertainty. And although that can lead to violence, which is the theme of the book, I also like to think it can open up a path to questioning, which will allow for greater freedom. Going back to the point you made about the myriad experiences there are of being trans, as you say, many people choose not to transition entirely and there are all sorts of kind of different subject positions which seem to particularly, you know, sort of enrage the TERFs, in fact. It seems to come across in the book that you think it's particularly valuable that that ambiguity and the variety of positions. But I wonder if that could potentially lead to a position where people say who feel quite firmly about their gender identity and, and want to transition, you know, people who talk about being born in the wrong body and, and, and want to very sharply shift over across the across the gender binary, where that could be seen as being conservative and that this argument could sort of open them up to criticism, for instance. Well, one of the most extraordinary things I watched was Kate Bernstein in dialogue with Kate and Jenna. The Caitlin Jenner position, which is to be as much of a woman as she possibly can be. And it's very important to say that for the for many trans people, they insist it's not who you get into bed with, it's who you get into bed as, which is to say that this is about identity. And she was interviewing Kate Bernstein because she, she had a moment where she was inviting lots of people who disagreed with her or saw it slightly differently onto her program in the States. And I happened to watch a few episodes. And Kate Bernstein was just saying, embrace the freakdom. <laughs> embrace the freakdom. And you could see Caitlyn Jenner looking at her as if she was completely crazy. <laughs> yeah. But the other really important example would be Jay Prosser's book, Second Skin, 
where absolutely for him it's a transition from woman to man and that is the point and it's a journey and it has a beginning and it has an end and so on and i think you just have to acknowledge that that form of trans and jay prosser said to me that he feels you know that he's a bit of a you know a bit out of date now because of all the the rapidity of the different kinds of categorizations which have just proliferated over the last decade and he came out 20 years ago they it can make somebody for whom it is a journey from a to b feel vulnerable but i think if there's one thing trans has taught me is that you cannot symbolically legit you can't legislate at all but you can't symbolically legislate on this which is to say that all those positions have to be acknowledged right so i would i would feel very very strongly that we can't say because Kate Bernstein is such an experimental, radical, self-wounding, self-celebratory, ambidextrous, like Susan Stryker, by the way. You know, you can't say because there are people like that that people like Jay have less claim to the title of trans. On the idea of the proliferation of different identities, holding out the possibility of a transcendence of gender in general. So you write in the book that I would tentatively suggest that we're witnessing the first inkling that the category of the transsexual might one day, as the ultimate act of emancipation, abolish itself. And, and we could maybe see this as akin to a future situation of racial justice, where radical black politics achieves the abolition of race as a category, right? I imagine, well, I don't imagine, I know <laughs> the radical feminists will respond by saying, well, there is something irreducible in the fact of biology, in the fact that some women can give birth and other people cannot. So why do you think that parallel actually may be more accurate than they would suggest? Well, I think you have to go to psychoanalysis for this because it was Freud's primary postulate, although it's not always the one for which he's best known that infantile sexuality was polymorphous and perverse and radically bisexual. And that the process through which, let's take the young girl, goes from being a libidinally active, clitoral-based, mother-intimate creature to being a boy, man, father-oriented, vaginal, passive person is a radical injustice and is a form of violence against the possibilities that she otherwise would have. It's true for both sexes, but he does actually say it's ungericht, it's an injustice. The requirement of one sexual form of being for everybody is an injustice, he's unequivocal about it. So then you can read the whole of psychoanalysis as Freud struggling with more and more difficulty and often very unsatisfactorily with the question of how a little girl ever comes to be a woman at all. To which one reply would be, well, if Freud fucks up by saying penis envy, for example, it's because she doesn't. It's because there is no answer to that question. So you can already see psychoanalysis as rendering very, very deeply uncertain the sexual identities through which we are obliged to recognize ourselves. And just more simply, he said, the sexual act is always an act between at least four people. Because even though the girl becomes a woman, or even if she does, in fact, her past sexual possibilities will be present in the room if sexuality is anything of the kind of letting go which we know it can in its best form and shape it can be. Which is not to say that sexuality can't be an affirmation of sexual pleasure in its differentiated form, which it also can be. 
But I would say that if you go back to psychoanalysis, then sexual difference is already a bit of a phantasmatic category. The little girl is not born. I mean, things Freud said, like that the little girl has no knowledge of her vagina because she's only... And this caused an absolute uproar. How dare... Or oh, when the little girl plays with her dolls, she is actually not showing her instinctive maternal instinct or drive. She's actually carrying out on the doll the power relationship that the mother exerts over her. So it's the opposite of the way it's often read. So Freud was very, very keen on the straight marketing. I always think of it like, you know, in the olden days when you would take your car down to the knacker's yard, as it were, and this vehicle, which was no longer usable, would be slowly compressed into this tiny little metal blob, which was what was left of the car. And I feel that that's what Freud is saying about sexual difference. It's a straitjacket. And it's sort of not, not something to be celebrated, even though at moments, of course, he came down on the side of normality. So I would want to say that we really need to pay attention to the way in which we are already on certain sexual subjects, as we know from our dreams and our fantasies and most of modern, most of literature and drama since year one. And we need to find some way of incorporating the insights of certain forms of literary writing and the insights of psychoanalysis into the mainstream, which is another message of the book. So people would be, to put it very simply, just more tolerant of these forms of ambiguity. On the idea of hauntings and the return of the repressed and, and ghosts and so on, so you have three chapters in the book on South Africa where you, you address many things, including the Am I Next protests against violence against women, the South African equivalent of the Me Too movement, I suppose. Also the 2015 student protests and then the killing of Riva Steenkamp by Oscar Pistorius. Can you explain why you decided to devote so much of the book to South Africa and, and, and what your own association with the country has been over the years? Well, it's very, very important to me. When I was at Sussex University, which is a long time ago now, I chose to teach a course on South African literature and writing, as I did eventually also a course on Israel-Palestine, largely because I felt, well, first of all, the introduction of diversity into the English literary canon was being dominated by Asian writers and by African-American women writers. And I, in fact, felt that two places in the world where Great Britain had huge historical responsibility, almost entirely for the bad, was South Africa and Israel-Palestine. So I decided I wanted to explore those two areas, and Israel-Palestine became more and more important to me, and it led to me becoming one of the co-founders of Independent Jewish Voices, so it fed into a whole strand of activism in my life, which is not in this book, but it has been in several other books that I have written. And the South Africa seemed to me so important because the kernel of British racism, when we talk about institutional racism, the kernel of that racism is in the colonies. It's in the British Empire. That's And we bring it home, right? It then comes home to roost, as the Windrush scandal makes very, very clear. It comes home to roost and settles into the institutions of normal, quote-unquote, British life, like the prisons and the police force and the law. So the beginning was just a passionate curiosity 
about South Africa, and I should add in that case, and this is not true of Israel-Palestine, a real sense of burgeoning hope and the idea that activism, anti-apartheid campaigning, and so on, which I had been part of, was actually bearing fruit with the democratic elections in the 1990s. So there was a huge exhilaration and optimism. And I think one of the most shocking things, and the person who's written about this most brilliantly is Margie Orford, queen of crime in South Africa. I think one of the most shocking things has been the persistence of racial violence and inequality in South Africa and the fact that it has become so gendered. Cape Town is known as the rape capital of the world. And what Margie Orford has said is that the failure to end apartheid economically, socially, and the increasing racial inequality in the country has led to such bitter disappointment that women are being made the scapegoats of the failure of the nation to live up to its own what we might call impossible promise. Because I don't want to downplay, I mean, I've been in dialogue with people like Albie Sachs, and I really don't want to downplay the miracle of what they did and the legal and constitutional and political transformation was total and amazing and a major achievement. I mean, they got rid of it. But the situation in terms of violence and inequality is as bad, if not, some people would say worse. So it's sort of, first of all, I was in it because I would teach it to students and they would say they had no idea how bad it was. I would teach them Alex Laguma and they would say they never dreamt how bad it was. Walk in the Night, one of the most amazing apartheid novellas ever to have been written. You know, and so it was showing them how awful it was and showing them the transformation. And then gradually the story shifted. It became how awful it was, how exhilarating it was, and now how painfully persistent and unequal the culture still is. And do you sort of regard the fact of the continued inequality and racialized inequality and, and all the violence that goes along with it, do you think to some extent that was inevitable? Because if the ANC had tried for more maximalist aims, the likelihood is there would have been a civil war that the apartheid authorities would simply not have continued with the negotiations. Well, that's what Anki Krog, the amazing Afrikaans poet, and Albi Sachs and other people told me on one of my visits to South Africa that the army was more or less outside the door during the negotiations to end apartheid and that Nelson Mandela really had no choice but to drop the references to the mixed economy. And what that meant was that capital rules supreme. And for many people, and I think I have been persuaded by this, the failure of the economic transformation in the name of a greater redisposition of land and equality has meant that what happened was bound to happen. But they, they were over a barrel. I mean, I'm not in the business of impugning Nelson Mandela, although I do discuss in one of the essays the increasing adulation of Winnie Mandela, who is seen as champion of the oppressed and as the person who was scapegoated and criminalized and perversely sexualized by sections of the ANC in order to sort of deposit a more radical agenda in an impossible place which could then be dismissed. 
And although, of course, what happened with Stompy McKenzie, and I'm not pretending for a minute that Winnie Mandela was a saint, but that was the problem. She had been represented as a saint during the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela. She'd been represented as the spirit and the mother of the nation. And she failed. But what then happened to her? I think two things are interesting. One is the sexualization of it. And secondly, is the way she's now going through this revival because she spoke injustice and inequality when everybody else was speaking harmony, reconciliation and truth. Would you say that to the, the younger protesters active on, on university campuses and, and elsewhere in South Africa, that they regard the slightly kumbaya image of somebody like uh, Nelson Mandela as rather unattractive these days? I think, well, the young people were behind the Rose Must Fall campaign, as you know. And this is, as I was finishing the book, it suddenly came crashing back into the news because of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the throwing of the slave owner Coulston's statue in Bristol into the harbour. I mean, suddenly we were back in the middle of what had started in South Africa and its kind of global resonance was suddenly seen, you know, for all to see. It could not be avoided and so the young generation, they were meant to be there, were called the born freeze because they were born after the end of apartheid. And the argument was that they, they were not meant to be thinking about the past anymore. They were meant to be leading forward into the new South Africa, whereas in fact, and psychoanalysis again would predict this, if you try and silence a past trauma through the psyche of the next generation, it will erupt, it will be unmanageable, they will not be able to contain it. So these protests and the violence of these protests, which was considerable at certain points, has to be understood in terms of historical patterns of repetition and silencing. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.